As we continue this morning in a series we've entitled For the Love of God, I want everyone to know up front that during the week, we have several members of our church praying for our congregation. That our study of the love of God wouldn't simply be academical or, you know, theoretical in nature, but it would be something that we experienced as a church body. And therefore, I believe that anyone who encounters the love of God will be radically transformed for the rest of their lives. I believe the love of God is the foundation to all that God has done on our behalf, and specifically speaking of sending His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to die for the sins of the world. It is this love that we are trying to capture in our series together. It is this love that we are trying to understand as a congregation, and please know this from the beginning. For me personally, this is just not simply a theological study of the love of God. This is my story. For at 16 years old, I was a young man that was truly, radically confronted by the love of God, and my life was never the same since. It was the love of God that stopped me cold in my tracks, knowing for sure that if I were to continue on in the life that I was living, I would have experienced grave consequences and serious repercussions. And one night in Elk Grove Village, on a porch, as I was standing there talking to this gentleman who was the father of the girl I was dating in high school, who was a Christian, He saw how my life was going. He saw and knew that I needed to be rescuing immediately. And one night, in a confrontation with him, he grabbed me by the collar and he says, I'm going to tell you something and you're not going to like it. He says, you need Jesus and you need him now. And this biker prayed with me on that porch, his arm around me, and I received the love of Jesus Christ, and my life was never the same again. My whole life changed. I saw everything through a bright and shining new light through the Word of God. This individual named Jesus that lived 2,000 years ago wasn't just some theoretical man in history. He was the living God that changed my life that he knew me from the foundations of the world and that he saw me that night with my heart breaking, knowing that I needed rescuing from the one who is my greatest enemy, me, myself. And God reached down from heaven and saved a young man like me by his grace. And it was the love of God that melted my heart to allow me to come to that place. For 30 years now, I've been walking with the Lord as a Christian, and over those 30 years, I never am ceased to amazed uh, by the fact of the depth of the love of God for me. I'm overwhelmed by it. I can't, I don't understand it. I certainly don't deserve it. And yet it is there constantly. And he loved me too much to leave me the way he found me. And he cleaned up this kid. And he set my feet on a whole new path and a whole new direction. And as I was growing up, it was amazing to see God each and every day reveal himself as I would simply read the Bible. God would say, I am there and I love you. And I did this for you. Now love me 
with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all your mind. What is Christianity? It's not a religion. It is not my attempt to try to reach up to God and saying, God, uh, hopefully I'm good enough to enter into your presence. Hopefully I'm good enough to enter into heaven. Hopefully I'm good enough to have eternal life. It's not religion. Man's attempt to reach God and to be accepted and pleasing to God in and of himself Christianity is the fact that it is a relationship. It is not me who strives to reach up to God. It is the reality that God reached down to me and saved me. And anyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ can have that as salvation. It is free for anyone. But God wants you to know that he is in hot pursuit of you because he loves you. And he desires a relationship with you that, believe it or not, is the relationship you are truly looking for and longing for. After becoming a Christian at 16, I was growing up in a home that was a very difficult home to grow up in. My mother, as you know, was an alcoholic, and she became violent when she drank. But my house was also a house where my mom and dad were very smart, intellectual people. They had both graduated from honors from prestigious schools. They had white-collar jobs and prestigious positions, but yet our house was still devastated by alcoholism. And I was mad, and I was angry, and I was taking it out on everyone around me because I was adopted into a home that had such difficulties and such problems, and I didn't understand it, and why would this even happen? And when I was initially confronted by an individual about God, I said, well, why did God allow all of this to happen? Now I know why. Because he used all of those circumstances to bring me to where I am today. I was adopted from an organization called The Cradle in Evanston, and just year, a year before I was adopted from there, uh, the famous actor Bob Hope adopted children from The Cradle. I could have been Eric Hope, you know. And yet God knew what he was doing. God knew that from the very beginning, not only would I be adopted into this home here in Elk Grove Village, but he was going to adopt me again to be his own. And I remember that night as vividly as it was yesterday, and my life has never been the same. Everything that I have in my life, God has blessed me with. My beautiful family, this church, everything. I never thought I'd be a pastor. Never. Never even on my radar. I was a musician. I, I grew up with guys that went on to have great careers in the Smashing Pumpkins and Billy Corgan. I grew up with all these guys. And yet God has something different in mind for me. And I'm so glad he did because I so much enjoy what I do. So in preface to what we are going to learn today, understand this is my story. It is my journey, my relationship with God that has truly helped me understand, not fully, but more maturely than I did initially uh, of the immensity of the love of God. It is a dynamic love. And once we start to understand this love that he has for us and separate it from the concept of love that our current culture has, 
which unfortunately in many cases have be- has become such a self-seeking type of love that it is centered on the individual and what the individual can gain and receive through this love rather than the uh, unconditional selfless love that God initially architected and designed. And so when I talk about the love of God, many of you may say and equate that word love and define it the way our culture does, but I'm going to tell you the Bible says something radically different. The Bible says that this love is so incredibly uh, superior to anything that we have in our current culture today, and that way I can tell you with uh, confidence that once you experience it, you can never be the same again. And so as I progressed as a Christian, as I grew in my knowledge of God, I was often confronted, often by my own parents who were not Christians, challenging me on my theology and how could Jesus be the only way to heaven and how can you believe that God created the heavens and the earth and how can you believe this and that and constantly being challenged and driving me to the Bible to try to find those answers concerning those challenges. But one person asked me a very simple question sincerely. What is Christianity? If you were asked that question by someone, how would you answer that? For of course, there are many different ideas of what Christianity is in our culture and in our society today. Many of them are very negative. But Jesus told us what Christianity is. It is the love of God and it is the love for our neighbor as ourself. That's what Christianity is, and it all centers around the person of Jesus Christ. Because we love God because He first loved us. And now we love others to demonstrate that we truly love God. And so we find ourselves in Luke chapter 10 this morning. As the populace of Israel started to embrace Jesus... And it was the common people of Israel. For the uh, intellectual elite uh, rejected him and abandoned him. The religious leaders of his time wholeheartedly refused to recognize who Jesus was. But the common people, the people who always felt separated by their social status due to the fact that they were born into what was considered their commonality. It was a a demographic of that society. They began to see Jesus for who he really was. He was God amongst them. God walking amongst them, interacting with them, loving them, uh, teaching them, feeding them, healing them. They began to begin to understand this is the one Messiah in whom we've been waiting for. And as Jesus became more popular amongst the laity of Israel, the religious leaders became incredibly jealous, wanting to discredit Jesus at any opportunity that they could, trying to trick him into speaking incorrectly or contradicting his own teachings. Isn't that nice? They try to trick God. Nice. But they hated the fact that they were losing their place of prestige and power amongst the society. And this nobody born in Bethlehem under uh, really suspicious circumstances for, you know, Mary was pregnant before her and Joseph were together as husband and wife. Scandalous. He was born in a barn. How can you ever receive and learn from anything from a guy born in a barn? But yet... 
He talked with such authority and he loved with such majesty and he interacted with the people with such grace and mercy. He was approachable. He was real. He was authentic. And they began to see him for who he actually was. But the religious leaders at every opportunity tried to discredit him amongst the people and in the eyes of the people. They tried in every way possible to do so. And yet Jesus, in his brilliance, of course, being God, was able to just simply turn things around on them continuously. Though he would be the subject of their examination, he would end the conversation with them standing in the midst of the eye of public opinion and of judgment. Because he was God. And as we come to the 10th chapter of Luke, we discover in his popularity the attacks against him began to become more frequent. And it was often from a a sect of the religious leaders called the Pharisees that were known as scribes. And these individuals would, their whole purpose in life was to copy the word of God word for word over and over again to allow those copies then to be sold or to be given out to other synagogues around Israel and so forth. But in the process of making these copies, scribes became so... uh, uh, accustomed and familiar with the Word of God that they often saw things that others didn't. You know, writing things out, you often learn things quicker. You often have a tendency to see things that you didn't see before if you were just simply skimming through it, reading it quickly. Writing it out gives you a different perspective and, and you start to notice each and every word specifically and therefore it has a greater impact upon your, uh, your intellect and your comprehension. As a young man, I was accustomed to writing things over and over and over again. I don't know how many times I've wrote things a hundred times or more. Many of my afternoons were sitting in front of a chalkboard writing. And you know, you always start out, write it a hundred times on the chalkboard. So you write it real big and say, I can only do it twice. I must be done. But by the time you're done, you surely remember that which you've written. And these were the scribes. Well, being a scribe was the first phase in becoming, at that time, a jurist or a lawyer. That was how the individual became aware and uh, understood the law of God, which is the first five books. It's called the Mosaic Law. It is the law in which governed the nation of Israel. And to become a lawyer in that society, you must first have been a scribe. And in that process of being a scribe, you learned the law of God. And a lawyer comes to Jesus. And these individuals were very specific. They were debaters. They were individuals who would pose an argument and a defense. They were the ones that were commissioned by the high priest to bring charges against an individual in a case of prosecution. If for some reason a Pharisee was brought under a legal uh, cloud, they would often be used in defense of that Pharisee at that time. They were most brilliant individuals of that society. Quick, sharp, knowing things inside and out. They could debate things. They could argue points very thoroughly and accurately. And this lawyer comes to Jesus to test him. It means to examine him. It means to draw out from the individual the truth. 
And the lawyer is trying to stumble Jesus in front of all the people by this question in which he is now posing to our Lord. However, though, in it is one of the greatest revelations concerning the Christian faith. It parallels the account that we looked at last week in Mark chapter 12. It was a common question amongst the Jewish people, and that was this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? For a rich young ruler came to Jesus and asked him the exact same question. People in that culture, especially amongst the intellectual community, were very much concerned about eternal life and how one obtained it. But in his question, he poses the question question in a fashion uh, that almost makes it an oxymoron. What can I do to inherit eternal life? I'll let you chew on that for a moment to see if you can discover the oxymoron for yourself. But as we read, we begin in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up. It means he took command of the crowd. He uh, drew notice to himself. And he stood up to put him, that is Jesus, to the test, to the examination. Saying to him, teacher, or in the Greek, rabbi, and it actually was a derogatory term. It was a term in which uh, the scribe was using to show that Jesus was on a lower intellectual scale than the scribe himself. A simple rabbi was nowhere near the intellectual level of one who was a scribe, or specifically, one who then became a lawyer after being a scribe. It was a manner in which saying, now teacher, you know, making him look, himself look better amongst the eyes of those who are witnessing this, putting the Jesus on notice that this follow-up question was something of real significance and, import, and importance. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Is eternal life something that you can inherit based upon something that you do? And the answer to that is no. An inheritance is given to an individual that uh, isn't necessarily worthy of the inheritance, but it was the decision of the deceased to leave the inheritance to someone else, right? If someone puts you in their will... It was their decision to do so, and you inherit based upon your inclusion in that will. It's the same word used here in the Greek tense, in the Greek language. And there's nothing you can do to place yourself. It's more not what you do, but who you are. And Jesus saw that the question was framed in such a way that it was truly an accuracy, an insincere question. I believe that there are sincere questions. When people ask a question, they're looking for a sincere answer. But there are insincere questions also that people will pose just simply to start an argument. And those I avoid. They're often these hypothetical questions, the what-ifs and so forth. And they want to stir an argument and debate, but they're not really seeking an answer. This individual may have been seeking an answer, but more likely was trying to... uh, you know, uh, catch Jesus off of his feet. Uh, Catch him in a trap. What can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, okay, this is, here we go. Here we go. 
Here's another one. He thinks he's so smart. Should I tell him now or later that I'm God and I created all things? But Jesus, in his compassion and his approachability, in his love, he asks the individual a very straightforward and appropriate question. What is written in the law? Well, you were a scribe, he's saying. You wrote it over and over and over again. Now, in the law, what can one do to inherit eternal life? Hoping that the individual would see that there's nothing that he personally can do to inherit eternal life. It must be given to him by someone else. And so he said, now, what is written in the law and how do you read it? Now, you've studied the law undoubtedly. You've looked at it, Jesus is saying. And what was your takeaway? Turning the question back on him to help him understand or to draw out from him what was the answer in which he was truly looking for. Now, this, this individual, this lawyer, came to the same conclusion the scribe of Mark 12 came to, that the greatest of every command in the Bible is this, in verse 27. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said in verse 28, he said to him, You have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. Jesus knew that it is an impossibility to love God in the manner that he desires you to love him without his assistance. Without at first experiencing the love of God for yourself, it is impossible to reciprocate that love in a proper way in and of yourself. Jesus was hoping that the lawyer would come to the realization that there was nothing that he personally could do to earn or to obtain or to maintain eternal life in and of himself, that he had to uh, look and seek another to give him that eternal life. We often think that we're going to approach God based on this scale in which we uh, compile, and that scale is our good works, and they're countered by our bad works. And we're hoping when it's all said and done that our good will weigh more than our bad and be uh, accepted into heaven, accepted into the kingdom of God, accepted uh, for eternal life, and so forth. That is called a works-based relationship. And it is truly opposed to Christianity. It is not what Christianity is. We can do nothing to gain God's approval in and of ourselves and in and of those things that we do. We may be better than the person that we're sitting next to and feel comfortable by that and saying, listen, I am, I'm pretty good. I mean, look at the person sitting next to me. Now look at the person sitting next to you and say, yeah, I feel pretty good. <laughs> it would be easy to do that, wouldn't it? Or when I talk about, you know, the gospel with people, they'll often tell me, well, I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler. I'm not as bad as John Wayne Gacy or Al Capone. Al Capone, he's been dead for over 100 years. You know, Al Capone, I'm glad you're not as bad as Adolf Hitler. I feel much better about our continuing our conversation. But we have a tendency to pick people that make us look good, to compare ourselves to, but in actuality, the Bible says there's only one standard and that's Jesus. 
And Jesus was perfect in every single way. And so all we can conclude from our examination next to the person of Jesus Christ is the fact that we are imperfect. In fact, we are so imperfect that we can do nothing to save ourselves. It doesn't matter what I do to try to rectify my sin and my guilt before God. There is nothing that I can do in and of myself. Not a thing. And therefore, bring me to the conclusion that all I can do is throw myself at the mercy of the feet of the court. All I can do is turn to Jesus, the perfect one, and say, Jesus, I can't save myself, but you can save me. Forgive me of my sins. Wash me clean by your blood that you sacrificed on my behalf. And allow me to once again have that relationship that I was separated from by my sin with God the Father for all eternity. And anyone who comes to Jesus with that sincere heart, with that, um, with that humility, is the individual that God will lay his hand upon and say, get up, you're mine. I forgive you. I don't care what you've done. I forgive you. And not only do I forgive you, but I'm also going to adopt you. And in me, you're going to take on a whole new identity. And you're going to understand who you truly are for the very first time. Because now you'll understand why you were created from the beginning. And that's Christianity. It's available to anyone who will ask for forgiveness in Christ. Now, there is no other way because there is no other God who came and died for the sins of the world. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's no other way. Every other way that man has created, you'll often discover, if you look at it objectively, you will see that it's simply man's attempt to try to obtain and maintain their salvation by what they do. Like this lawyer, he wanted to know, what shall I do? And Jesus says, well, what does the law say? Hoping that he would see that it's impossible to be perfect before God in and through it. And that the only place that I can go to have and, and inherit eternal life is, by, is God himself who is individually capable of giving it to me. As Jesus says, all who come to me, for I will give them eternal life. But since it was an insincere question from the beginning, God is certainly not advocating that he do this and will live. He knows, Jesus knows, that this is an impossibility. But verse 29, look at this. He, that is the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who, uh, by the way, <clears throat> exactly is my neighbor? Oh, Jesus, you got me. <laughs> That's it, I give up. You're way too smart for me. But notice that, he tried to justify himself. He tried to turn the attention to the question in which he was about to propose uh, posed to Jesus. This was a common debating tactic in Judaism at that time. It was often used when the individual didn't know how to answer the question posed to him properly. The lawyer has now been put on notice. He's been put on call. He's been asked directly by the Son of God himself, but desiring to justify himself, desiring that 
Jesus sees that in and of himself, this lawyer is capable of doing whatever is asked of him to inherit eternal life. Who is my neighbor? Who is the one that I am supposed to love? Who is the one that God would have me uh, uh, sacrifice myself for? And who is the one that I should be aware of and conscientious of going forward to show my love towards them? Now, the question itself is one of exclusion, if you think about it. The individual is asking a question, who is my neighbor, so he can identify who he should love and who he is not responsible for loving, right? Now, you may say, when you read this, because of your understanding of the word neighbor, that he's simply speaking of maybe someone you live next to. When we think of a neighbor, what do we think of? One who lives next to us, right? One who lives in our subdivision. One who lives in our apartment building. One who lives uh, near us. That's our neighbor. But the word neighbor simply means in the Hebrew and the Greek, one who is near. That's what the word neighbor means. Who is my neighbor? Who is the one that is near? And again, he is asking it in the manner in which, who may I exclude? And who am I then therefore responsible in showing my love to? So Jesus decides to answer him in what is called a parable, which was a story. And in that story was a lesson, an illustration for all to learn. Now, Jesus knew that not only was this lawyer one of his audience members, but if you read in other places in Luke 10 and 9, you'll discover that Jesus is surrounded by people. So Jesus is going to take this opportunity to explain to everybody who their neighbor is, not just the lawyer in whom's asking. And in this parable, we find that Jesus is going to turn the tables completely on the lawyer. Not by simply identifying the neighbor in need, but more importantly, asking a question at the end that was more pertinent to the actual discussion that is here, that is being uh, presented to us. Notice with me in verse 30. And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. There's a 17-mile road from Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem in Israel is on one of the highest uh, plateaus there in the land, and everything else you go down to. Uh, Israel was just at a city on a hill. It was something that travelers could see from a distance from wherever they were in the, in the land and see it raised up because of where it was uh, built, and they could use it as a guide to find their way to that city. So leaving the city of Jerusalem, you'd always be traveling down. And the road to Jericho is still a road there today. It's uh, the Vadegedi, and it's still there, and it's about 17 miles long, and it has a drop of about 2,500 feet in it. So it, it's an incline as you're going down. Going up is a whole other thing. Coming down is much easier. And so as this individual, this man that we're being introduced to in the parable, he is actually being placed in a setting that would have been familiar and in common to all those who are listening. Oh, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. I know that. That's a, that's a bad road. That's not, you know, travel there at night. That's a tough one. The road was um, lined 
with caves and pockets and crevices that robbers and muggers would hide out in all the time. And as individual travelers would come through that road, they were often simple prey, easy prey for those who were waiting to ambush them. And so Jesus uses this familiar setting to bring about this parable. And as he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Travelers, of course, walked, and they traveled very lightly in that culture. Their shoes and their cloaks and their clothing on their body was often all that they had in their travel endeavors. So it is very likely that this man was left half dead, naked, and beaten on the side of the road. And so people now were bringing this imagery into their mind's eye as Jesus was teaching this parable. And now Jesus begins to flesh it out for them in verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road And when he saw him, that is the man who had been robbed, beaten, left half naked and dead, he passed by on the other side. A priest was one who was responsible in that culture and society for bringing the sacrifices, the offering, the worship of the people before the Lord and the Lord before the people. It was a very high, prominent position of power in that culture It was one of great responsibility, one of great prestigious uh, character. And as a result, priests were highly um, revered in that culture. And yet this priest could not even take a minute to help the one who had been beaten and robbed and left half naked on the side of the road. Many would have concluded that the priest didn't want to defile himself if he had discovered that the body there laying there was dead. Now, the Old Testament law says that a priest could not defile himself with a body, uh, by a dead body, uh, and therefore enter back into the temple until he was ceremonially cleansed in a certain way. And some would just easily say, well, the priest didn't want to be bothered. The priest didn't want to be defiled by the man. But the priest didn't even check if the man was alive or dead, did he? He just simply assumed. And well, okay, so he didn't want to go through the ritualistic process of cleansing himself. So he went on the other side of the road and and avoided the situation altogether. But there's a problem, and Jesus knew it. Uh, he knew that the problem would be identified by that culture. The priest was walking down. He was leaving Jerusalem. His His duties as a priest were probably concluded and therefore being defiled by the dead body wouldn't have mattered one way or another. Very interesting little detail. He perfectly could have stopped and helped this guy, but this individual was indifferent to this man laying on the side of the road. But then a Levite. Now, a priest was also part of the tribe of Levi, but he was specifically a descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses. But a Levite, one of the tribe of the uh, Levitical priests, who was a Levite and an assistant to the priest, verse 32, so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side also, just as the first one did. Again, indifferent. 
to the circumstances, unwilling to stop. We don't know if the priest felt that this was below him to stop and to tend to this man who was in need. We didn't know if the Levite was consumed with other things, other responsibilities. For example, a Levite who was an assistant to the priest would often be the one that would help people memorize the law. It would be one who helped people find passages within the law, etc. He was consumed with all these other religious rituals. And yet when a person in need before him was seen, they were indifferent. Both the priest and the Levite. Now you can imagine the priests and the Levites who were listening to this story, they began to seethe inside. Jesus is just going right at them for their hypocrisy and their pride. He's showing the people their insincerity and their indifference to true people. But then he stuns them all in the crowd. And he says in verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now let us understand that there is a real racial issue here in our text. The Jewish people hated, and I'm using that word literally, hated the Samaritan people for who they were. The area of Samaria was in the southern section of where you see a map of Israel today. And years earlier, that area was conquered by the Assyrians. And after being conquered by the Assyrians, many of the Jews left and traveled north, but some Jews just decided to capitulate to their captors, to uh, submit to their conquerors, and they stayed there in, in Samaria. And as time went on, these Jewish individuals intermarried with Assyrians, and they were now considered, um, and please, I use this term uh, just for our discussion today, as half-breeds to the Jewish people. And they were hated because of this. When a Jewish individual would tell a story, the hero was always the Jew, and and of course, the villain was always the Samaritan. The Samaritan was always painted in a bad light, and the Samaritan writings that we have in extra-biblical context were often painting the Jews in a bad light. There was no love lost between them, though rarely did they get violent amongst each other, but they disdained each other. They avoided each other like the plague. And assuming that the man who was robbed was a Jewish man, Jesus introducing the Samaritan who is hated by the Jews as the hero of the story would have truly caused them to consider their own heart and their own uh, position before God. The Samaritan saw him, and what did the Samaritan offer to him? Compassion. The first two met the individual with indifference. I'm too busy. This is below me. Or whatever their motivation or reasoning was, they did not want to even check to see if the man was still alive. But the Samaritan, the one who was supposed to hate the Jewish people, he stopped and had compassion on this man who he had no reason to have compassion upon. He was simply compassionate. 
But not only at that moment. It only wasn't just a sacrifice of a little bit of his travel time. Notice what he does next. Look at what he does in verse 34. He went to him. He bound up his wounds, which means all the material needed to bind up his wounds, this Samaritan individual provided. He poured on oil, which would soothe the wound, and wine, which would disinfect it. This, were, this was a costly process to the Samaritan. He took time. It wasn't enough just to simply find him and flag someone else down to see if that other person could help the, the man who had been robbed. He himself allowed his compassion to manifest itself in a costly way and sacrifice his own bandages, his own oil that he would have used for himself if he would have been, uh, if he would have been uh, hurt, his own wine if he would have been injured. And not only that, he puts the individual on his own horse or burrow or donkey, and look what he does. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii, which is two days' wages. So I'll let you calculate that out for yourself of how much money that would be possibly today two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Now take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Did the Samaritan go above and beyond? Did he go the extra mile? Did his compassion manifest itself in a way that was truly inspiring and life-changing? the individual who was left for dead by his own Jewish brethren, the Samaritan who was supposed to hate him, took such costly time to tend to his wounds, to bandage him up, to help him up, even to set him up in a hotel for a little while, saying, listen, if you need to take more and if he takes from the minibar, I'll pay it back when I come back through the next time. Now, all of the people listening there would have been stunned by this because it truly showed the indifference of the religious leaders and the compassion of one who was supposed to hate but yet yet showed love to the man who was near, the man who was his neighbor, the man who was in need of help. The person who is our neighbor, Jesus is saying, is the person that is in need that needs our help. And it doesn't matter if that person's a Christian, where though the Bible says that we first and foremost should always look to go the extra mile for our Christian brethren and sisters in the Lord, if they need of something, let us be willing to provide it for them. But this also means the person that is in need, the person who we do not know, the person in whom we simply want to drive by and don't acknowledge, the person that we see standing asking for money at the street corner and our mind begins to justify the reasons why we want to just simply drive by without stopping. Oh, I don't have time for this person today. Oh, it's probably his own fault or her own fault that they are in the position that they are in. 
They're probably drunks and alcoholics and drug addicts. And they're simply going to take the money I give them to further their addiction and their bondage. How often do we rationalize these things in our mind as we simply pass by in indifference? But according to Jesus, this would be our neighbor. And if we can help, maybe we should help. If we can assist, if we can show the love of God to someone, that's Christianity. And it's not that they have to agree with us theologically. If I saw an Islamic gentleman who needed help, I would help them in the love of Christ. If I saw an individual who was an atheist and adamantly opposed to God and all that uh, God stands for, I would still help them. I would still be concerned for them that they may see the love of Christ through me. If it's someone who has sinned in such a way that is appalling to maybe us who are Christians, I show them the love of Christ because Christ showed me love when I was in that same position. That's Christianity. That's what we do. But the parable wasn't solely to allow us to identify who our neighbor is. And often when this parable is taught by individuals, it is often just left at this moment, at this time, and said, our neighbor is anyone who is near to us and who has need. God bless you. Let's pray. Amen. But we would be dismissing Jesus' conclusion. We would be missing what he was actually trying to accomplish through this parable. Verse 37. And he said... I'm sorry, let me back up a minute. Verse 35. And the next day, the two denarii I gave to him, take care of him. I will pay you when I come back. Jesus asks him in verse 36, pardon me, which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Well, that's interesting. This man was asking the question, who is my neighbor so I may exclude others who are not? Jesus turns it around and says, no, I'm not worried about the person that's your neighbor. I'm worried about what kind of neighbor you are to that person. Where is your heart in this equation? Which of these three was a true neighbor to the man who was robbed? Where is your heart at? What kind of person are you in the equation? Jesus turning it back on them, on this lawyer. Well, the one who stopped and showed mercy. He couldn't even say the Samaritan. He wouldn't even acknowledge that fact, most likely. But the one who showed mercy is the one who was the neighbor to the man that was in need. And Jesus, look what he says here. Now Jesus said to him, that is the lawyer, you go and do likewise. Don't worry about who your neighbor is. It's the person who is near to you in need. But what kind of neighbor are you going to be to that person? That's the real question here. Where is your heart? Are you so religiously high-minded that you, like the priest, walk simply by the person in indifference, thinking that it's not worth your time? Are you like the Levite who feel that, uh, well, maybe others will be responsible for that, but I have other tasks that I need to be responsible for? And then this Samaritan who had nothing to gain by any of this 
went to such extents and such lengths to help and to give this individual a chance to, of restoration and healing. That's what God is asking of us. There are some scholars who interestingly propose that this was an actual story at the time. That Jesus wasn't making this up, but simply reciting something that already had happened. They have evidence for it that is very interesting. For example, once the Samaritan was named, most of the individuals would have probably just simply shut off in their mind and no longer listened to what Jesus was saying. But if this was a real-life illustration that Jesus could have used, how dynamic is that? But even if it isn't, how many times are we confronted with a real-life situation just like this? And we are so concerned about summing up the person that we are about to help that we don't even consider the type of person that we are. Am I the type of person that's willing to allow my time to be spent, allow my money to be spent, allow my uh, you know, wealth to be used for the healing of another. Think of the impact that this Samaritan would have had upon this Jewish man. How grateful do you think this Jewish man would have been? But even if he wasn't grateful for what the Samaritan had done, even if the, Samaritan, uh, the Jewish person hated the Samaritan who helped him, the Samaritan still did what God would have had him to do. Now, this didn't earn the Samaritan the right into the kingdom of heaven. I don't want to indicate that. But the Samaritan allowed himself to sacrifice on behalf of one who is in need. I am very concerned that we as Christians are going about life with blinders on us. And we want to help those who are in need. And often we are looking to do so in many different ways. But with these blinders, we often miss the needs that are right around us at the moment. The needs that are in our own neighborhood. The needs that are in our own community of the building in which we live or the, in, in the apartment in which we live. You know, maybe you see that there's someone in your neighborhood who is, can't shovel or or cut their grass any longer, why don't you go do it for them? Help them out. Maybe there's someone in your neighborhood that's going through a really tough time financially. Why don't you just help them out if you can? Bring them over some food and just say, hey, we love you. Here, have a meal on us. Or why don't you have a meal with them and say, listen, I brought this food over. I just happened to find these porterhouse steaks. So why don't we just grill them on up, and let's have a meal together. This is Christianity. And we do it so we can show the love of Christ to those who are around us. One writer said, the big question is, to whom can I be a neighbor? And this has nothing to do with geography or citizenship or race. Wherever people need us, there we can be neighbors And like Jesus Christ, show mercy to our neighbors. Listen to this individual who wrote. I thought this was so insightful. One of my favorite scholars. We read this passage and think only of the high cost of the caring of the Samaritan. But let us, for a moment, more closely uh, count the cost of not to care at all. 
I thought that was so insightful. Oh, look at all that the Samaritan spent on him. Think of how much it would have cost if the Samaritan did nothing. How can we say that God loves people if we're not willing to love people? And I think the Bible actually says that somewhere. Listen to what he went on to say. The priest and the Levite lost far more than their neglect than the Samaritan by his concern. They lost the opportunity to become better men and good stewards of what God has given them. They could have been a good influence in a bad world, but they chose to be a bad influence within a bad world. The Samaritan's one uh, deed of mercy has inspired sacrificial ministry all over the world for ages. Never say that there is such a ministry is a waste. God sees it to that, uh, that no act of loving service in Christ ever was a loss. He says it all depends on our outlook, though, if I may read continually. To the thieves, this traveling Jew was a victim to exploit, so they attacked him. To the priest and the Levite, he was a nuisance to avoid, so they ignored him. But to the Samaritan, he was a neighbor to love and to help, so he took care of him. And what Jesus said to the lawyer, he said to us, go and keep on doing it likewise. Turn with me in your Bibles as we conclude to the book of 1 John, which will be in next week. In the book of 1 John, chapter 4, verse 19, if you will turn there with me. I would strongly encourage you, if I may, to read John, 1 John 4 and 5 for next week. But listen to what he says. Chapter 4, verse 19. If we love, we love, excuse me, because he first loved us. The reason we can show this love is because we've experienced the love of God for ourselves. But verse 20 is when it becomes very difficult. Now, if anyone says that I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God in whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. He is speaking of our brother and sister in the Lord. This is where it begins. We must love our fellow Christian, our fellow brother and sister in the Lord. But Jesus expounds on it one step further. What does it do to you if you love only those who love you? What reward do you get? Anybody can do that. But he says, love your enemies. Love those who persecute you. Pray for those who use you and despise you. We need to rethink Christianity in our culture today. People are longing for a relationship with Jesus Christ, with God the Father. But they see the church, and in so many ways, the church has been so self-centered, self-important, self-neglectful, that they... They see this and they can't get past the church and its, and its poor witness and conduct in the world to see the God in which the church is supposed to represent. We're not perfect here at Calvary Chapel. 
This is not the perfect church. If, if this disappoints you, I am so sorry. But when you find the perfect church and join it, it'll no longer be perfect. The church is made of imperfect people serving a perfect God. But I can't change everybody else. But what I can do as your pastor is to encourage you to love people as Jesus do, does to encourage you to see those people in need, to take a step out in faith, to see what God would do as you go and to help someone who is in need. You can always justify a reason for why not doing it, and I've done it myself. But then I read this, and I wonder of the opportunity that I missed. Was it more costly for me to drive by than it was to stop? It's something to think about. Next week, we're going to continue on looking at 1 John, so please read ahead. Because we are making our way after establishing how important love is to finally define this love for us. This love is so superior to the love that is in the world that to use the word love as the world uses it is to truly diminish, distort, and to pervert the love that God has for you displayed and recorded within the Bible. Anyone who will come to Jesus and say, Lord, forgive me, for I have sinned against you. Forgive me of my sin. I believe by faith in the sacrifice in which you've provided and the resurrection in which you demonstrated can be saved. And once you place your heart in the hands of Christ, your life in the hands of Christ, once you begin that relationship, then you too will inherit eternal life. It's nothing you do. It's what God has done for you already. And everything that he did on your behalf, he did because he loves you. You don't warrant that love. You don't deserve it, man, just like I didn't. But God chose to love you. He chose to show you his love by giving his only son for you. And if you will believe in his son, Jesus, you will have everlasting life. You will once again be instilled in this dynamic relationship with God the Father through Jesus that is so incredible. It is so immense. I can't even explain it to you. It's like trying to explain to someone who's blind the the colors of a rainbow. But once you experience this relationship with God, you'll never be the same again. And then you begin to grow in your relationship with him. And he begins to work in your life because he loves you too much to leave you the way he found you. He starts cleaning you up restoring you to the person that he so desires you to be. God knows you better than you know yourself and he knows what's perfect for you and whatever, man, whatever that looks like. He's the incredible artist that if we will allow him to take us and to mold us into the image and shape he wants us to be, we'll understand what it truly means to live. So many people think they're living when they're merely existing in life. 
They don't know who they are. They don't know what direction they're going. They don't know what identity they have. They have no history and they have no future. They, they're lost so greatly. And then God swoops in as our great savior, our great hero, and says, if you will believe in me, I will substantiate all of that in your life. And I'll answer those questions that have been so deeply plaguing you for so long. And it's free, guys. It's a free gift for you that will cost you the rest of your life. You know why? Because he'll want you to walk with him, have a relationship with him, love him as he loves you. And I will will tell you this, your life will never be the same again. 